If I had to choose one word that would summarize what Matthew is about, it would be discipleship. It is Matthew's word for the normal Christian life. It's not some sort of special class of disciples who are, you know, especially uh, special to him. Rather, it is the normal Christian life for everyone who has had repentance and faith and come to him. It's the very first thing which Jesus does publicly in the gospel. He gathers disciples, and it's the very last thing he does in the gospel. He tells those who he has discipled to go and make disciples of others. But it's not like discipleship is just sort of the status which you achieve, and you get it, and you've got it, and you're good. Discipleship in this book is far more like a journey that you begin. And so everywhere between chapters 4 and 28, we see Jesus in the process of discipling his disciples. So he's going to teach them. He's going to rebuke them. He's going to correct them. He's going to encourage them. He's going to challenge them, and he's going to coach them. He's going to coach them up all the way through. And so as we take a look at what Jesus does here, he does it because the time is short and the stakes are high. And, of course, as we watch him disciple others, we learn ourselves how to do that, how to become disciples of him. Today in Matthew 16, we are at a critical turning point in Peter's discipleship, and Peter is just representing the other 12, right? So it's an absolutely critical turning point in the discipleship program. And so a little bit of background to where we're going to be here in chapter 16, and let let me say it like this. There are two really big markers in the book of Matthew that that are hinge points upon which everything else flows. The first one is here in 417. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the second one is here in 1621. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Now, I know that that may not look very impressive to you, uh, but for scholars who study Matthew, and I'm not one of those scholars, but I read them, right? Uh, For the scholars who who talk about these things, it's very convincing that these are absolute hinge points. So what I mean is this, that there's this introduction, of course, from chapter 1, but if Matthew could have simply put in bold and in red, he would have said, part 1 is here and part 2 is here. Now, that's important to us because you'll see there, 1621 is right in the middle of our chapter. So what we're going to do today is we're going to finish part one and we're going to start part two, right? So really, if, if, again, to put this theme together, I would probably call this Discipleship 101 and Discipleship 102. So the very first and most basic lessons of discipleship come in this first 16 chapters, and then we really get heavy and go on to the second semester, as it were. So let's begin here then with chapter 4 and verse 17, and I just want to quickly summarize how Jesus has discipled Peter in the beginning here. So this is part number one, beginning from that time on, and then notice the very next verse is verse 18. So in verse 18, walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and they were fishermen, and he said, follow me. Now, at this point, we don't know much about Peter and his brother, except that they have repented. They've listened to the message of John and Jesus. They've repented their sins, and they're following him, and, and they, they, they're not really very mature yet at this point, but at least they're willing to drop their job and take off. They're like 
Abraham, who in Genesis chapter 12 left Ur and went to the promised land. And the rest of Abraham's life is a study in progressive faith. And the same thing is true here. That's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to follow him, leave their nets. So Jesus disciples them in the Sermon on the Mount. He speaks to his disciples. And then he shows them miracles. And some of those miracles are just really sweet expressions of how Peter and James and John should live. He, he'll touch the uh, unclean people, and he has compassion, and uh, he, he, he even goes, is willing to go to a centurion's house. And I think this is especially instructive because if you think about the rest of the New Testament, this is exactly what Peter is called to do in Acts chapter 10. He's supposed to go to the house of a centurion, and he absolutely balks. And so I think back here to Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus says, I will go to the centurion's house, and I think, Peter must have been on his phone that day, you know, or whatever that first century equivalent was of that. He, <clears throat> he was supposed to be listening, supposed to be learning, but he wasn't quite there. So <clears throat> there is much to learn for Peter, and he is growing. He's in process. Another one of those miracles is where Peter's mother-in-law is healed. And, and I don't know exactly what's going on there, but I think it's just absolutely curious that it's Peter's mother-in-law. Now, I don't know if Peter had trouble with his mother-in-law or not. You know, he could have been a normal guy, and maybe he just needed Jesus to say, you know that woman that you <clears throat> have trouble with? I, I really like her. I love her, and I'm good to her. And you know, Peter, maybe you should be too. I, I don't know exactly what it was, but Peter all the way through is growing and learning, and he's, he's, he's being discipled here by Jesus, which takes us to, I think, a, again, a pretty formative spot in his discipleship, and that is when they're out on the lake. This is in chapter 8, and Jesus calms the storm. I'm not going to go into it in detail. I just want you to see here that at this point, Jesus says to them, oh, you of little faith. Now, this is a favorite term of Jesus for the disciples. Now, literally, it would be something like you, you puny faiths, something like that. Now, it would typically, you think of it as a sort of a derogatory term, except that Jesus here is acting as the discipler, as the coach. So what he's saying to them is, come on, guys, let me call you up to something better. You, you, you can do better. This is good. This is good, but you can do better. Come on. Let, 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 let's get it up, right? There's room to, to grow here. And so at the end, they marvel, which is good, but they say, what sort of man is this, right? So we realize they're, they're not there yet. If you're asking what sort of man is he, you're still not there. So let me take you to one more spot, and that is chapter 14 before we get to chapter 16. And again, we're out here on the sea, and it's stormy. And what happens is Jesus shows up to them, and Peter said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, what I love about that is this, that Peter is the one who takes the initiative. And he says, Lord, command me to come to you on the water. Now, now why does he do that? Well, because, I think, he's learning what discipleship is all about. Discipleship is about following Jesus. So he says, well, if Jesus is walking in the water, evidently he wants me to come follow him. And, and so he makes that overture. And again, I think there's progress and there's growth here. And so Jesus does say, come. And we know how the story goes. We won't belabor it here. But he sinks and Jesus again chides him and he cries out to God and all that's sort of good. But there you see that phrase again, oh, you puny faith. 
Now, again, I don't think it is a derogatory thing. It's like saying, really well done, Peter, but there's more to learn. There's more to learn, and you can grow, and you, you can get better. And in fact, you see it here because this time they answer the question which they ask in chapter 8. Remember that? In chapter 8, they said, what sort of man is this? And that's, that's how it ends. Here, they give the answer. You know what? You are the Son of God. That's growth, right? That's discipleship. They are learning. They went from what sort of man it is to saying they worshiped him, you are the Son of God, because uh, they have learned here that he is the God-man. He is deity. You don't worship a man. You worship only God. So great, great growth moving here. That's, that's what I want us to see, which leads us then to where we are today in chapter 16. So in chapter 16, these are some verses that I hope you have read in some daily reading. Um, uh, Taylor did not read them for the for lack of time, but this is an important place where it starts. The Pharisees and Sadducees come to test him and ask him for a sign. Now, in some ways, we've been through this before. Pharisees have asked for a sign. Jesus has refused it back in chapter 12. The reason is because they've already rejected him. He knows it, and so he's not going to provide any more proof. So what is new to us, what's special about this portion in 16.1-4 is not their request. What is important is the word and. It may not seem important, but it is critical. Why is that? It's because now we have Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, let me just give you a quick history here. In the book of Matthew, we don't ever see those two together except for here and in chapter 3. In chapter 3, they, they went out and they opposed John the Baptist. Here, they're opposing Jesus. Now, again, this is so important because Pharisees and Sadducees are, are like the, the two most important groups. They, they both control their areas. The Sadducees control the temple. Pharisees control the synagogues, and both of those are really, really important. So you can afford to offend one or the other, but when you offend both, you're in trouble. And that's exactly where Jesus wants to be, and that's exactly where he is here. The other thing that's important is you never see in the book, in the Gospel of Matthew, you never see Sadducees up in Galilee. Why? Because they're spoiled aristocrats who live in Jerusalem. They're 80 miles away from home. For those guys to come up here demonstrates a really incredible turning point. And so when Jesus sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming together to ask this sign, he knows this is it. We've come to a huge turning point. And so, notice the words here, so he left them and departed. They might just think, well, he went away, right? And the answer is no. This is a climactic moment. Because way back here in chapter 13, after the parables, Matthew says he went away from there. He withdrew from them. Then in chapter 14, verse 13, he withdraws again. And when we get here to chapter 16 and verse 4, when it says, so he left them and he departed, it's a definitive moment. It's like, that's it. I'm done. Not talking with you guys anymore This is so serious, now I'm going to go spend time with my disciples. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that these disciples have no clue what's going on here. If you were to ask the disciples about how serious this was, they would say, nah, not a problem. I know the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're they're cantankerous, but 
What you don't understand is that Jesus is the folk hero of the people. We, we got the crowds in our pocket. They, they love him. They love the miracles. They follow him around everywhere. They'll say Hosanna every chance they get. It's good. Well, what's going to happen here? Pretty soon, we're going to ride right down into Jerusalem, and, and the crowds are going to overwhelm the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they will get on board. If you said to them, do you think there's any chance at all that the Pharisees and Sadducees might kill Jesus? That would have been the wildest thought in their minds. They would have thought, that's the dumbest thing ever. It'll never happen. If Jesus himself said that, I'd rebuke him. That's what Peter says. Never, never even occurs to them. But Jesus sees the danger here. And so that's why what happens next is this. In verses 5 through 12, they're walking across. They're, they're not walking. They're not walking this time. They're boating across the lake, right? And when they reached the other side, Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and notice how clueless they are. And they began discussing among themselves, oh, we forgot the bread. Oh, he's after us about the bread. And they're all off on the bread here. And, and notice again, there's that word, verse 8, but Jesus aware of this said, oh, you of little faith, you puny faiths, you're so slow to get what's going on here. And then he goes on in this pedantic lesson. Don't you, do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000, how many baskets you gathered? I don't care about bread. It's not about bread. If we need bread, I'll give it to you. We don't need bread. I'm talking to you about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, what is that? And the answer is this. It's not simply their teaching. Right? Because it says here, they understood he did not tell them to be aware of the leaven of the bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's not simply their teaching. Because frankly, the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees is so different, there isn't any common ground in between them. Except for one thing. And the only thing that the Pharisees and the Sadducees agree upon is that Jesus is not Messiah. So what Jesus is trying to say is, you know, you've got this confidence that we're going to go down there to Jerusalem and just overwhelm the city and overwhelm these leaders, leaders. but I'm telling you what, they're teaching that I'm not the Messiah, that I've done these miracles by the power of Beelzebub, that's going to work its way through the crowds like leaven, and the whole lump is going to reject me. Now, that lesson is still really, really far <clears throat> from their minds. And to prove it to you, let me take you to the next part of the passage. So here we are in verse 13 where Jesus is really going to just say it to them as plain as can be. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? So he kind of throws them this softball question. You know, who do other people say that I am? But what I want you to notice here is that we're in the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now, the reason this is pretty important to us is, let me, let me just show you a picture of it here, is the Caesarea Philippi is way, way up north top of the map. It's, it's outside of Israel. Now, in the couple of chapters before this, we've gone all the way over there to Tyre, and then we've come back from the coast of Tyre, and, and we've gone over to the Decapolis region, all these places outside of where the Jews are. Why? Because Jesus is getting away from Jewish crowds. They still try to follow him, but Jesus says, look, this, this is so critical. I've got to completely get out of town, and he goes to the stinkiest place he can find. Caesarea Philippi, way up north, reeks of paganism. 
notice that there are no Jews who follow up here. Notice there are no Pharisees. There are no Sadducees. He is completely alone. He's uninterrupted in order to take the most definitive message to these disciples that they had heard up to this point. So here's what he says to them, right? <clears throat> who do people say that I am? And then he gets really personal and says, but who do you say that I am? And so Peter responds. He hits the ball out of the park. It's a home run. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the God-man. Now, Peter may not understand all that that is, but his answer is exactly, completely, perfectly correct. So Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, I've seen this kind of thing play out a lot in my classes, you know, where <clears throat> you'll say, you'll ask, the professor will ask a hard question, and uh, a couple of people will get the question wrong, and then eventually someone, by wisdom or by luck, will get it right. And when it happens, it's almost always a big celebration that takes place, right? The guy who gets it right high-fives his friends, and they just go off because they're so excited, and, and class has to stop until the celebration finishes, right? And I imagine that that's probably what was going on here, <clears throat> that there's a big celebration, and, and Jesus has to get Peter's attention because he's so excited about having, you know, been the A-plus student, right? Uh, <clears throat> but what happens next is really interesting. Because he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, this is a really rich passage, and we can't, don't have time to go into all the details, but let me give you my take on it first, right? When he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, when I was in seminary, it was, it was pretty popular for us to interpret the rock here, the rock being the deity of Jesus. And, and it's certainly true, the deity of Jesus is a foundation here. But part of the reason we did that was because we didn't want to be Roman Catholics, right? <clears throat> we didn't want to give any place to Roman Catholic doctrine about the papacy. And, and I, you know, I'm still obviously quite sympathetic to not doing that. Sort of, I, don't, I don't want to do that. There is no point of the papacy being here. But the trouble is that, that this passage is really emphasizing Peter, right? You are Peter on this rock. And in fact, the disciples would have heard it something like this. This is how it would have sounded in their language. You are rocky, and on this rock I'll build my church. And then it goes on to say, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Right? So he's speaking here about Peter being a part of this program. Now, uh, I, again, there is nothing of a papacy which continues here at all. But I think if we just look in the book, rest of the New Testament, in the book of Acts, in the book of Ephesians, we'll see exactly what we're talking about here. And that is that the, that the apostles and the prophets are foundation, Ephesians 2.20. We'll see that in the book of Acts, it is Peter who opens up the gospel here on the day of Pentecost. It is Peter in Acts chapter 10 who goes and opens up the door to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. It is Peter and his other apostles who determine doctrine in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. It's Peter who writes epistles along with the other uh, apostles here. So there's a certain special kind of apostolic authority. Again, Ephesians 2.20, the, the, the uh, apostles and prophets are the foundation, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone uh, in, in Ephesians. So I, th I think what, what he's saying here, what, what 
what Jesus is saying is, Peter, you're going to have a major place in the program I'm going to build, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, is that gates of hell, is that a reference to demonic powers or satanic powers? And, and I, I'm not sure if it is or not, but even if that's what it means, it's clear that Satan will not be able to stop this program. I really think that what it means, gates of hell, is probably the entranceway, that is, death. So what Jesus is saying here, just before he gets ready to talk to him about his death for the first time, he gives him the good news first, right? Like someone says to you, you want good news or bad news? Here's the good news. The good news, before I'm going to rock your world, Rocky, is this, that my program will continue, that you will have a major part in it, and a death will not stop it. Whose death? Well, I'm going to tell you that in a second here. But none of what I'm going to tell you is going to alter the fact that this program will continue and, and, and will, have, will be victorious. So this is where Jesus is with them at this point in verses 18 and 19, and then he finishes with verse... Oh, I'm sorry. I, I should have said this first. When we started out, we, were, we found out that we were going to see Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. So all I want to say is that by the time we get here to Peter's confession, we've come almost full circle, right? We started out, we're going to show you he's the Christ, and now Peter confesses it absolutely. So we've really got this part accomplished. And then we get here. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, wait a minute. If, it, if that, anything seems contradictory, that, that seems absolutely contradictory. I just, I, I just answered the question perfectly. And, and there is no doubt that he did because Jesus says that the Father has revealed this to you. So Peter is really flustered and he says, look, I, I, I thought I got an A+. And Jesus says, well, you did on the first answer. And, and Peter says, is there another answer? Is there another question? And Jesus says, yes, there is. There's one to come. So, so what score did he get? You got about a 50. You scored 100% on the first question. Second question uh, that I'm going to show you here in a second, you're going to flunk really badly. So uh, I don't want you telling anybody that I am the Christ. Now, what in the world is going on here? Did, didn't, didn't I graduate with full honors? And the answer is, yeah, you did from the first grade. That's really good, Peter. You, you have uh, accomplished Discipleship 101. You mean there's another semester? Oh, yeah. Oh, there, there's a whole graduate course in what's about to happen here. So again, this is the point. Notice where we are, chapter 16 and verse 20. Let's go back to where we were at the very beginning. Remember, Discipleship 101 goes there, and verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to show. So now we are ready for Discipleship 102, and what is it that Peter does not yet know, and what is it that, why is it that Jesus does not want him telling anyone that he is the Christ? And the answer is because even though he is correct about the fact he's the Christ, this other piece of information is so important that Peter will distort the information if he only tells him what he knows. So let's go on and take a look at it, and here it is, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third and third day, be raised. Now, this is the first time Jesus has been so explicit, but it certainly isn't the last. 
because you'll say it again in chapter 17, verse 22. As they were gathered in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered in the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Now, at least they don't rebuke him here <laughs> in verse 22 of 17. They're still not happy with it. And then finally, he will say that in chapter 20, verse 17. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 uh, disciples aside, and on the way he said, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and be raised on the third day. So he's going to continually work through this with them, and right here in 1621 is the very first time that he has mentioned it. So let's take a look at how they respond. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, it's almost cute, isn't it? I mean, Peter doesn't want to embarrass God, so when the time comes that you have to rebuke him, it's good to do it privately because you know it's just humiliating for God to be embarrassed by one of his creatures. And so he takes him aside because you just have to do that. The text says he rebukes him. Not a fancy word. The dictionary definition is just this, to express strong disapproval of someone to rebuke, reprove, censure, speak seriously, warn in order to prevent an action or, or bring one to an end. Like, you got to stop this. The ironic thing is in Matthew 8, verse 26, Jesus rebukes the wind. In 1718, Jesus rebukes the demons. So, so catch the thick irony here. The material creation, the winds, the uh, supernatural creation here, the demons, all that obeys Jesus. The only thing that doesn't obey Jesus is the pipsqueak, the puny faith, who's had the audacity to speak up and say, no, let's, let's talk about this. Peter correctly understands that Jesus has the power, but he wrongly assumes that he, Peter, has the wisdom. In this way, Jesus treats Jesus like the genie in the bottle with power who pops out to follow the directions and grant the wishes of the wiser human. Peter is fresh off the high of his right answers in class, and he feels like he knows how Jesus' life will unfold better than Jesus. So he takes him inside and says, Now look, uh, i got to get this straight with you. Uh, here's how it's going down, okay? You're going to continue to do miracles. Um, the opposition will be overcome. Uh, we will march into Jerusalem, whereupon Pilate will gladly relinquish his crown to you. Uh, we will sit, me and my brothers, we will sit here on your right and your left. The Romans will leave, and we will all live happily ever after. Let me repeat myself. You are the Christ. You are the God-man, and the plan and the talk of your death will ruin everything. It's just amazing that Peter does this feels like he knows Jesus' future better. But do you realize that as Matthew takes this very private situation and exposes Peter to the world, that he's really exposing you and me as well? Because we might look down on Peter and think, well, <laughs> he's so silly. I'm glad I'm not that stupid. But really what you're looking at here is a really good picture of your preacher right now. What we're really looking at is a mirror 
that shows us what our hearts are like inside. As we want to see Jesus as the God-man who's going to bring in the kingdom and is going to wear that crown, and we want a part of that, but we also have our agenda, and we want to be able to utilize that power for our own ends. Now, again, to put it out there plainly like that makes it sound so bad, like, oh, no, we would never do that, but we just do it every day. And, and the, the, tides, the tides of our selfishness want to take him off the throne put ourselves on the throne, yet still use the powers of his throne. And that's exactly what Peter is attempting to do here. Peter's view, he's trying to put, trying to use Jesus as the genie to make his reality, view of reality come true. Solzhenitsyn said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it was necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every man and every human being. So, as we take a look at what Peter is doing here, I can imagine that as Jesus listens to him, Jesus says, Peter, that is so interesting that you would not want me to go to the cross. I, 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 I feel like I've heard that before somewhere. Now, let me see. Let me think back here. Uh, avoid the cross. Where have I heard that? I, you know, there was a time when I was in the wilderness for 40 days, and uh, I heard these words, if you simply bow down to me, you don't have to go to the cross, and I'll give you everything. Yep, that's what it is. I've heard that before, Peter. And frankly, you should get behind me because your breath smells like snake's breath. This is exactly the word that he's speaking. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me if you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. The things of God are simply this. The view God has about how the world will work out best. In this case, God thinks that Jesus going to the cross to pay for the sins of the world will ultimately heal the broken world. The things of man are simply the view that we have from our limited short-sighted, twisted, comfort-oriented, selfish, non-God perspective. Jesus should make us happy without any sacrifice on his part, and preferably without any sacrifice on ours as well. So Jesus now tells Peter, buddy, here's what the things of God look like, and here's how it's actually going to go down. I will not continue to do miracles. They have had enough already. We will all march into Jerusalem, but the opposition will overcome us because I will willingly submit to them. Whereupon Pilate will not gladly give me his crown. He will give me a cross. And the only people who will be on my right and left will be robbers hanging on their own crosses. The Romans will not leave, and they will eventually destroy this city and this temple and to Peter's mind, that is a terrible plan. And if that's not bad enough, it's about to get worse. Because there's a cross, not just with Jesus' name on it, but with Peter's name on it too. So, verse 24 tells us this. Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So that we find out here that Jesus is not simply going to redeem the world and then the disciples get off scot-free, but like disciples, 
Jesus calls them to follow where he goes to. Their deaths will not be atoning, but their deaths will fill up the sufferings, as Paul says, of Jesus. They will imitate their master in every way, and God's program will be magnified because of it. Peter was speaking truth from the Father when he said, you're the Christ, and now all of a sudden he speaks truth, right, from the evil one. Verse 25, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Do you realize that if Peter had gotten what he wanted and Jesus hadn't gone to the cross, if Jesus' life had been saved, if Jesus had saved his own life, then the rest of us would have lost ours completely. As it turns out, all the 12 disciples, well, not 12, 11, not, not Judas, but all the others gave their lives in suffering and ultimately, if we can trust church history, Peter himself went to a cross finally. And the reason for it is right here in verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. There is coming a time when God makes all things right. This is a really hard lesson for Peter. But he eventually got it. I mean, he struggled against it. He was cutting off people's ears and lying repeatedly to keep Jesus from suffering and himself from suffering, but he eventually, eventually got it. And when he did, Jesus then said, you know what? Now again, it is time for you to tell everyone that I'm the Christ. And he recommissions him in Matthew 28, 20. Before that, he didn't have the full picture. He knew that there was a crown. He didn't know there was a cross. And if you don't know that there's a cross you might just start preaching a prosperity gospel to yourself. I don't think Peter was exactly a prosperity gospel preacher, but he certainly had that kind of flavor to what he had to say. So what does this mean for us today? And I would say what it means for us today is, first of all, to realize that we should not think of this as, oh, this is what it was like back in Bible times, but it's different now. Because we don't suffer like this now. Could I just say it's not a difference of time because all you have to do is go around the world and find millions and millions and millions of Christians who face this kind of reality all the time. I think that should sober us and we should realize that because of that unique place, that locale where we have, our experience isn't like this on the surface, but millions of people it is. And we ought to pray for them all the time. The second thing it means for us, though, I think is this. Even though we are not likely to die for our faith here, Jesus still calls us to take up our cross daily, to take up the instrument of death. Stephen Ambrose's book, Band of Brothers, he recounts this conversation between a private Blythe and a Lieutenant Spears. And the private confesses to the lieutenant that he has a debilitating fear of war. And the lieutenant says to him, we all are afraid. But he says this, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. The sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function. All war depends upon it. If I can borrow that sentiment for our purposes, the only hope we have of progressing in the journey of disciples 
is to die to our dreams and pursue his dreams with all of our hearts. All of the mission depends upon it. So if we look at Peter's life here and we realize exactly where he went wrong and just take that direct application to us, let me just say it like this. If I have the perfect plan worked out for my life, this one may hit me harder. Some of us don't know what we're going to do tomorrow or next week or the next decade, but others of us have them completely planned out. You know who you are. You, you, you have the color of the fence and the house and the children's names picked out, or maybe if you're later in life, you know what you're going to do in retirement and when it's going to happen and where you're going to go and all that sort of stuff. And if you're one of those kind of planners, I wonder, in all your plans, is there any room for God to adjust them? Do you trust him enough to fill your future with whatever he wants? Do you really want to be a disciple and follow him? Or do we think that if we rub the lamp in just the right way and we check all the good Christian boxes, we can get that powerful genie out of the lamp and fulfill our wishes? That's not discipleship. That's Disney. In the genie model, you tell the genie what to do and he does it because it's assumed you have the wisdom and the genie has the power. In a God model, he tells you what to do because he has the power and the wisdom. Perhaps I just need to stop informing God on what a good plan for my life is and I need to start asking him what his plan is for me. If I did that, what would God do with me? I don't know. I have no idea what God might do. But the point is you have to be willing to say that every day. And to wake up every morning and to say, God, I have no idea what today holds, but you do. I have no idea what is actually really good for the kingdom and what is actually good for me today, but you do. Would you help me to be where you need me to be and to say what you need me to say today? And to take up my cross and to die to any desire I have. Lord, let me be so consumed with your priorities and the things of God and the mission of God on this world. I'll be willing to do anything and say anything and go anywhere in a way that glorifies you. That's discipleship 102. Is Jesus the Christ? Is he the God man? Is he the Son of God? And the answer is absolutely. There is a crown, there is a kingdom, and there is also a cross. And until you're willing to put those two together, not only see what he's done with it, but what, how it fits together in our lives. Jesus says, don't, don't go tell anybody and don't distort this gospel because the gospel is about the goodness and the grace of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of sins and the suffering lives of his disciples are going to help show that. That's the gospel. That's the message of Matthew 16. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful, so grateful for the way the Father has revealed to us these simple truths. Lord, so many wise people have missed them over the years, and yet, Lord, by your grace, by your mercy, you show them to us. And now, Lord, it is up to us to determine what to do with them. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves in this story, that as we see the story of Peter, you would help us, Lord, not to, like the disciples, miss it an optimistically plan about the power you will give to us to carry out our dreams. But Lord, help us to take the power which you've given to us to achieve your dreams and your goals in our lives. Lord, that is our prayer today, and we ask it in Jesus' name.